Hello there. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino, and I'm so delighted you've decided to join me. This is a podcast where I talk with other people in healing-type professions about the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. One thing I wanted to bring up before I talk about today's guest, on Instagram, recently somebody asked me a question about self-disclosure. And I'm going to try to come up with some sort of social media stuff for it. But I thought I would just kind of share essentially what I have learned. And I haven't done a lot of reading on the topic other than, you know, what I did in grad school. What I've learned over the years. Well, first, let me say what I've learned as a person. What I've learned as just a human outside of being a therapist is that whenever I share something that's vulnerable and personal Every single time somebody will tell me, I'm so glad you said that I've been feeling that or I was too afraid to share it or something like that. There's something that's that's healing for that person when I share what's been going on with me. So I take that frame when I'm working with clients and I like to use the term professional vulnerability because Obviously, when we're working with a client, we're not going to be saying all of the details about our trauma, our childhoods, you know, what we're struggling with, all that sort of stuff. But I think it's super duper helpful when we're real and we're honest with clients about, you know, wherever we are. For instance, I can think about, you know, after my mom died, well, my dad died and then my mom died, right? Y'all know that happened in succession. And Right after my mom died, I had to tell my clients what was going on because I had to take a significant amount of time off because I was grieving, you know, and I shared, I think I, I emailed them all and said something like, you know, you all know my mom's been sick. She passed away. I am going to be taking some time off to take care of myself. I'm doing yoga. I'm, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever it was I said that I was doing. And I got a reply back from one of my clients that said, thank you for modeling what it looks like to care for yourself when you're grieving. So That's one piece about self-disclosure that I'll share with you today is that if we can step into professional vulnerability and share, share our humanness with our clients in a way that can be supportive also of their journey, I'm all for it. So now on to today's guest. Today's guest is Rahim Thauer. Rahim is a queer Muslim social worker, psychotherapist, consultant, clinical supervisor, sessional lecturer, and writer. He is interested in the intersection of mental health and systemic oppression, as well as innovation in queer men's relationships. So please enjoy my awesome conversation with Rahim. Rahim, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hello. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited because I know almost nothing about you. I just saw that you were on my friend Tristan's podcast and I'm like, this person looks like someone I need to have a conversation with. And then we found out we're both ENFJs. So come on. <laughs> you know what? That says it all. Like we're destined to be pals. And with Tristan as the conduit, like getting us in touch, you just know that it's all it's all solid. So I'm looking forward to our future friendship as ENFJ social worker psychotherapists who talk about sexuality things. Amazing. Perfect. Great. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit more in depth to the audience so they get to know who you are? Sure. My name is Raheem Thauer. My pronouns are he and him. I'm a queer, racialized South Asian therapist and social worker, born and raised in Toronto, currently living in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So 
for folks who don't know, all that is in Canada. <laughs> Some people don't know, so I have to they say don't. it. It's all right. Yeah. I do a lot of public speaking, training, workshops around anti-oppression and the intersections of systemic oppression and mental health. I'm also particularly interested in innovation and queer relationships. And a lot of my work has been in communities that or agencies that serve LGBTQ folks or people living with and affected by HIV. Some of that has also overlapped with supporting newcomers to Canada. And mm. yeah, we use the language newcomers in Canada, where I don't think that's a thing in America. I think they just say supporting immigrants. <laughs> yeah, so. that's so welcoming. Like, come on. <laughs> so that's part of the work. And I also do some community development stuff, depending on how you use that language. What that means is I do community organizing work with an organization called Salam Canada, which supports LGBTQ Muslims across the country and just carving out space for our stories, our experiences, our pain, our people, you know? So that's a bit about me. I am starting to write more. And that's why you saw Tristan and I posting online because she's agreed to write the forward for a book I'm currently working on. So I'm super mm. excited about that. That's really exciting. What's the book? Or can you tell us? Is it a secret? I'll tell you later. I think it's going to come okay. up. <laughs> okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. So I really, really love origin stories, especially therapist origin stories. Like what crazy shit has to happen in our childhoods that we grow up and we're like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to listen to people's problems all day. So I'd love to hear wherever you want to start your origin story. <laughs> sure. Well, growing up, I remember some very specific moments where aunties and uncles, extended family, people who came to my mosque, people who noted, you know, in passing, or they told other people, they said, you know, Brahim, he's very understanding, or he's very mature, or he understands. Mm. They would communicate something about me being either diplomatic or wise or mature in a particular way. And I think at that time, I, I felt affirmed. I was like, oh, people can see that I'm quite sensitive to my environment and highly attuned to it. And these were like little tidbits of affirmation. Like no one stepped in and said, hey, you should do this thing. Like I just started to think about myself as being quite attuned to human behavior and also being really attuned to my own emotional experience. And when I think about my own emotional experience, a lot of that has to do with the ways in which I felt left out. So being a femme guy or certain things around class, I was very attuned to growing up, you know, who was wearing the brand names and who wasn't. I over here was not. Same. And yeah, and so I just became aware of how people were communicating. I didn't have the language for it, but I was interested in like these power differentials between people, like mm -hmm. who has more social capital in particular situations. Mm -hmm. And also how do families operate when they decide that they want to share things or they want to keep things private? I was kind of fascinated by that and also annoyed, you know? So like which families talk about finances and education and vacations and which families like mine are a bit more concerned about how that's going to appear to other people or concerned mm. about performing a certain kind of middle-classness. Of course, that's not language I had back then. But these are the I was going to say, how old are you when you're like contemplating the <laughs> systems of life? <laughs> oh my gosh. 
quite young. I, I, I really am thinking back to like grade four and five, honestly. Wow. But without the language, of course, just like Mm-hmm. Attuned to differences and and who is celebrated and who's not and how our stories get formed. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about how the world works and how people interact. You know, that was very interesting to me. I think also being queer, part of how I, I describe growing up on the margins is I think about a lined piece of paper and you've got the main story on the lines that are given to you. And then there's notes in the mar- literally in the margins. And I think about, for a lot of us queer folks, our experiences are about being socialized and learning what the main page says and then putting notes in the margins about how we don't fit in or how we kind of see things or we're trying to make connections between things. And I know this might not be everybody's experience, but for me, I think being a sexual minority made me see the world in a slightly different way. And then become very curious about how different people see it and experience it. Hmm. I relate to that piece too. I, I always say I'm like just on the outside of like every group that I'm in. Yeah. I'm kinky, but I'm not kinky enough. I'm bisexual, so I'm not gay, right? Like I'm not queer enough, right? There's there's yeah. so many different ways that I have existed on the margins. That's a really a beautiful way to put it. Thanks. Yeah, you know, I think when we don't fit in, There's something really shitty about that experience, but also we get to gather a lot of information about the world around us. And I think there's some value in that. And I think we, as therapists, I don't don't want to say commodify that, but we use that to inform how we understand other people's stories. And it really gives us a lot of power to affirm their experiences of being on the margins or being on the outsides of the dominant story. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And at what point were you like, I'm going to be a social worker therapist. Oh my goodness. I thought I was going to be a teacher for a long time. Me too. It's so weird. (laughs) I thought I was going to be a teacher because I remember certain teachers, like my law teacher in high school, my business teacher, my English teachers, all of them, just being really cool. And, And I started to see teaching as a way to really empower students to be who they are and to write. And, you know, I think as I went through my undergrad, I realized that that could be a cool thing to do. But then I learned, I remember my last year, my undergrad, I learned about social justice and I learned about anti-oppression for the very first time through my minor in English literature, which is really Mm. odd, but that's how I came to it. (laughs) And I realized, you know what, I want to go into therapy but I decided not to go the counseling psychology route, even though my, my major in undergrad was psychology. I said, I want to be a psychotherapist, but I want to do it through a social work lens because mm-hmm. examining systems of oppression were really, that was really interesting to me. Of course, I got to social work school and then I realized, hey, I'm learning a lot of stuff I already know. I need to really make sure I focus on learning more about mental health and clinical skills so that I'm prepared by the time I leave this program. But that was a little bit of my my trajectory in thinking about who I want to be professionally. Mm, that's super cool. I am imagining that because, you know, social social work roots are marred in controversy, let's say. I'm curious how you've grappled with that yourself. Yeah, you know, I think I really like my profession and how I interpret it. <laughs> and I feel like there's a lot of cool social workers out there and I like how we conceptualize our practice. And being both, you know, working within a system, but also in some ways being anti-establishment or critiquing a system. 
I'm very hesitant to be a social work cheerleader. You know, when people say like social workers are really great at a lot of things, they really see the person holistically or they have like jargony ways of talking about how great we are. <laughs> and I'm really cautious about participating in that because for a lot of people, we have been extensions of the carceral state. Right. You know, we've been part of apprehension and incarceration for marginalized folks. And, and in Canada, that specifically looks like Black and Indigenous people and poor people and drug users, you know. And so... I'm cautious about aligning myself too much with that because I'm cognizant of that history. I think we've also been used in many ways to legitimize people's like institutionalizing of people mm-hmm. as a result of their mental illness and taking away their rights. And so I think very much about how to be a social worker and use my credentials in a way that is radical, political, but also sometimes figuring out what that looks like within a system, helping clients navigate like when they're in an inpatient unit because of psychosis or, you know, self-harm, thinking about how do I advocate for them or how do I align with them so that they feel as supported as possible during a really difficult time. And I know that that time is particularly challenging because I am seen as someone that's part of the system. And one of the biggest complaints people will bring, you know, when they're in an inpatient unit is like, I'm being over-medicated. And I mm. 100% believe them. You know, I'm not like, no, you're not. This is for your own good. I'm like, no, I fucking believe it. You probably are. Let's talk about how do we want to talk to the people around here about this? How do we measure? Like, and, and I, this is like, it's very CBT of me, but I'll say like, how do you know when you're doing well? And how can we communicate that to folks here to tell them, you know, mm-hmm. when I was experiencing really dark thoughts, here's where my mind was going. And right now I feel like I've moved past, not even feeling like I'm going to do that but I'm feeling really sedated. And so I can't access my happy thoughts either, or I'm having trouble concentrating and planning. So we come up with like some concrete language (laughs) to help people figure out where they need to go. So I know it's not super radical, but I'm really thinking about believing people, being on the side of survivors, helping them get the care they need, but also trying to advocate for them within a system. Right. People might also say that that's not enough. So I'm aware of that. Well, you're one person. I mean, that's kind of what I, like I put the weight of the world on my shoulders and this like, okay, we've got to like tear down the system and create something new. But that shit is fucking hard and tiring and one person cannot do that. So to be one person who sees a patient or a client clearly, there is so much in that that you're giving to the client, to that person. That's huge. That is revolutionary. Well, thank you. (laughs) I appreciate that because I think when I think about stigma in our profession and the people we work with, I think there's just so much stigma around people who experience mental illness and psychosis in particular. I think like lots of people hear voices and it's fine. They don't necessarily need to be medicated or they're aware that there's another dimension to them and they are not a risk in any way to themselves or other people. And I do think like they can choose whether or not they want to change that through medication. People living with HIV, when I've worked, you know, in in those systems, I feel like people living with HIV are often criminalized. People doing sex work are criminalized. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of things that I'm always thinking like engaging with a larger system when those people are feeling unwell or having difficulty is not always helpful. You know, like we have this duty to report that duty, like just re-traumatizes some people. So I'm not saying we won't call 911 when I need to, but I am very aware that 
those things that are put in place don't actually support everyone. Yeah. In the conversations I've had with communities that are talking about trying to decolonize therapy and the mental health system, we've talked about stopping someone. You know you know that they're going to say something that you're a mandated reporter for, and you can just be like, I'm just going to remind you right now that I'm a mandated reporter. Yes. <laughs> if you'd like to back away from this conversation, then you have full consent, right? Or you can tell me the thing, and then I unfortunately have to do the thing. Totally. And you know, with queer folks, I when I begin therapy, I'm often telling them, you know what? When it comes to suicidality, I don't have to report. I have to report if you have a plan to end your life. I think for those of us who live on the margins, having dark thoughts like chronic suicidality, those are symptoms of trauma and complex PTSD. Like that's normal. That is absolutely normal. It's just if you you are really going to, you have a plan to really not harm yourself, but like to end your life, then we're going to do something because like, you probably aren't in the best headspace and we want to protect you. And I know that sounds paternalistic, but we want to get you to a headspace where we can actually continue to do the healing work. I have to balance that against people's bodily autonomy. And yes, I have to think about how long they have been chronically suicidal or really unhappy with themselves in the world. Mm-hmm. And not to say that I would not report or not intervene, but I just think about it. I just have to sit with the discomfort of my duty to report and also this person's bodily autonomy. It's a thing I have to sit with. Yes. Well, and let's be really straightforward. And I think I'm on the same page with you. We don't get to decide whether people live or die. That's not our job. That is definitely up to the individual. And I mean, I was talking with my husband. (laughs) Of course, I I was watching some show where somebody's incapacitated and I turned to my husband and I'm like, will you please smother me with a pillow if it comes to this? And I say that in, in jest, but I also think like, you know, and this is controversial. So like trigger warning for those who have struggled with suicidality. I'm one of those people, but why don't we have a right to kill ourselves? Why is that a thing that we are not allowed to make a choice about? And because some systems are so detrimental and so traumatizing to individuals, it's like, here, we're going to create this really shitty place for you to exist, but you can't do anything about it. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, you know, on the one hand, if there's a bunch of marginalized folks who are wanting to end their lives and they do successfully, it's something very painful and sad about that because I think... right. We want people to persevere and to be able to heal and to be able to thrive. On the other hand, why are our healthcare and mental health care systems designed to support people at the brink of crisis as opposed to other times? Mm-hmm. You know, like we're talking about right. basic redistribution of economic and social resources so that people have a fair goal at life and you know, have options, have opportunities, have access to resources. Like that's Mm -hmm. where the change needs to happen. But I I agree with you. I don't think we get to decide when people live or die. Like people do make those decisions. And I think one of the really challenging things in our systems is even for elderly folks, you know, if someone is dealing with a chronic illness, what our healthcare systems don't always acknowledge is that at a certain age, even if an illness is chronic, if you have multiple other health issues, it starts to feel terminal. You can start to experience a lot of deterioration. And I've had a couple of clients who have said, you know, like my MS is is progressive Mm -hmm. and they see it as chronic and stable. 
but I'm in my 70s and I'm having all kinds of other issues and I'm, I'm not eating, I'm not having proper bowel movements. The kinds of things I need help with make me feel humiliated or undignified. I'm having trouble bathing, like all of these things that are, mm-hmm. you know, co-occurring. And they, you know, at 70, 80 years of age, they're not able to access medically assisted dying because they're in a way not ill enough. And so I find that to be really tricky, like assessing in a kind of a formulaic way doesn't work when we're talking about suicidality, chronic or terminal illness and the complexity of people's needs and how to center their decision-making power around their own bodies and their own fate. Right. Well, and when I think about suicidality from my clinical framework, suicidal ideation is a symptom of a problem, right? You said trauma. I guess I'm completely with that. And then if we extend that to a more macro view of certain populations experiencing a lot of suicidal ideation, again, that's a symptom of a systemic trauma, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) We fucking heal the trauma in our systems instead of blaming individuals for not, you know, thriving. (laughs) Totally, totally, totally. You know, the stigma of people who are suicidal is also quite high within healthcare systems. If somebody's in Mm -hmm. and out of eMERGE, they get labeled as having borderline personality disorder. And I've sat with a lot of clients of mine who have a label of BPD. And I'm also a psychodynamic therapist and love thinking about things in terms of attachment, in terms of defenses. Mm -hmm. And so I get to have these conversations with people where I'm like, when you were feeling this way, what do you think triggered it? And let's talk about like a sense of abandonment and isolation and what's going through your mind when you get to a crisis point and when you feel like self-harm, self-injury or suicidality what are you hoping to accomplish or what are you thinking is going to come of this kind of self-intervention? And then Mm -hmm. when you go to hospital, what kind of help are you hoping for or looking for? And the other pieces are like, if you were successful in doing this, who do you imagine is going to come to your bedside? And who are you thinking is going to experience regret, remorse? You already know they love you, but you're going to realize that that's going to be solidified for you because they're there. And let's talk about those people in your life and how have they hurt you? Are you angry with them? And how can we get them to be closer to you? Or how can we mend some of those relationships or fix some of those ruptures without it coming to a crisis point? Or build other relationships. Absolutely. And I think that is, it's not that I don't believe in the label of borderline personality, you know, structures or traits, but I think it's connected to a story of trauma and abandonment, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we have to examine that in the context of different levels of crisis and unwellness and not dismiss people as attention-seeking or dismiss them as people who are a burden on our systems because that's how they get talked about. And it's pretty violent, you know? If somebody's in crisis and they want to end their life, you can't say that they're attention-seeking they are in crisis mode. And so all of their emotional resources are taking up their mind and their ability to employ very concrete skills. They're in a difficult, difficult time and they get mistreated by the systems we have in place. And that pains me so much. Yeah. 
Well, and, you know, when we say attention seeking, when we think about it from an attachment perspective, it is, it is, it's, (laughs) it's a desire to be seen. And I've been trying to write a like slash memoir slash psychoed sort of thing on trauma. And so I've been reading old diaries, which that is the most fucking painful thing to do. And just like reading all about like, you know, my suicidal ideation Mm -hmm. and this like attachment shit. And I just, everything that you were saying, I wish somebody would have asked me those questions, Mm -hmm. right? Asked me, how were you hurt? How, you know, what's going on in your relationships, right? Like if we had more people, not just mental health professionals, Mm -hmm. but if doctors would have that conversation with their patients, if teachers would have that conversation with their students, right? That would change everything. I totally agree. I think the spectrum of help It's not even a spectrum. It's like two buttons. One is ignore and dismiss. And the other button is panic and report. And there's so much to do in between that. Like sometimes if you panic and report, you enable or exacerbate the sense of crisis instead of de-escalating or supporting. If you dismiss, you also do the same thing. And there's so much Mm -hmm. in between. And I think people are, they're scared to have those conversations. And I think we fucking need to. That's where the work is. That's what we need. Yeah. And I I think too, you know, to bring in sort of the, the wounded healer lens on this, if we as the, whoever the reporter is, whether it be a teacher, doctor, mental health provider, whatever, if we have not done our work and touched our own pain and our own desperation and our own panic and worked through that in some sort of healing way, of course, that's going to bring up fear. If you've never contacted your own, you know, suicidal feelings, which not to say that everybody has suicidal thoughts, but I think everyone has annihilation fears. Yes. Right. Whether that's self-imposed or other. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we were all to tune into these frequencies for ourselves, we would be able to hold so much more space for others. I couldn't agree more. And I think people who go to get their psychotherapy schooling from a school of psychotherapy, whether it's, you know, the Psychoanalytic Institute, the Gestalt Institute, the Relational Therapies, whatever it is. It actually, I don't even think it matters which school you go to, but those schools often require you to be in your own therapy. And I love that. Mine did not. And I wished that they would have. Totally. And if you you go the master's route, you're doing a master's of counseling psychology or, or a master's of education in counseling, or you're doing like an MSW, a master's of social work. And that's a two-year program that does not, like they across the board do not require that. It can lead to a lot of messiness (laughs) and it's an occupational hazard. Yeah. So I I have this joke with my listeners. Nobody has ever said this to me, but I always just assume if I say something too much, they're like, shut up. But have you heard of NARM? I have not. Okay, friend, get ready to have your socks blown off. It's called the Neuroaffective Relational Model. It's a model all about developmental trauma. And I'm sure they would hate that I describe it this way, but I basically think if somatic therapy, psychodynamic therapy, and Buddhism had a baby, it would be NARM. <laughs> so if you're aligned with those three like ideologies, you will love NARM. You know what? <laughs> now that you describe it, I think I had a textbook in my old workplace that I shared with students so that we could look at all the different ways trauma affects your like affective skills and neurological skills to develop some questions to help people get some insight around their trauma. So now that you're talking about it, I think I'm aware of it, but you know, I may not be integrating it into my work as much as I ought to. So thank you for that. I'm going to look into it. 
I'm obsessed. I'm going to co-parent that baby. <laughs> yes, right? Yes. Oh, well, let's shift it back to your internal process. And I'm, I'm curious how you would answer the question whether or not you consider yourself a healer. You know, I usually don't use that language to describe myself. And I think part of it is because I assume people who call themselves healers are more in touch with spirituality than I am. That's a complete assumption mm. I'm making. And I don't see myself as a particularly spiritual person. I think about joyful moments and the things that feel very special. And I think about those as spiritual experiences. And then a part of me is like, ah, oh, it's all constructed. There's no real meaning in life. And I'm kind of, you know, you said I'm not <laughs> a nihilistic. So I'm quite cynical in that way. And so I think healer often connotes for me a layer of spirituality that I support and cultivate in other people, but don't really see in myself, frankly. But I do, I do appreciate spiritual experiences. But the other piece of that is I find that people who use the language of healer are also trained in things that are explicitly labeled as healing practices, like different forms of somatic work, touch, and like Reiki, energy work, that kind of thing. And the other hesitation I have is I, I worry that maybe it's a bit appropriative. I'm not sure. I'm like, is this reserved for people who, you know, have been named healers in their particular communities? The folks who I know personally who use the language of healers, some of them are indigenous. And so I'm like, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense in a different framework. And I wonder, oh, is this for me? Is it not? So it's a long-winded answer, but I typically don't refer to myself as a healer, but not like after having had conversation with you and looking a bit more into your work, I do think it's kind of a nice label or a nice thing to be able to claim some of the time. So I'm into it. Yeah. Well, and everything that you mentioned about why you're kind of like pushing it away is right in line with a lot of the reasons that other people push that away. And, you know, I don't require my guests to identify in such a way and especially <laughs> not call themselves. Like, I don't think anybody, well, a few people, but like most people are not like, oh yeah, I'm like a healer. It's more like, okay, sure, I'll take that if they believe that. And a lot of the times, those of us I find who really do identify with the term healer, we believe that everyone is a healer. Mm. And so it's not exclusive. Right. In this context, I will admit there's been moments in therapy and particularly at the ending of relationships where people will tell me the impact the work we've done has had on them. And I absolutely do feel like there's a healing vibe to that, you know, that I, I can claim and take partial responsibility for. And in those cases, I would say, yeah, I, you know, I was part of their healing. However, there's also lots of folks who I've seen while working in the public sector in particular who are, you know, maybe a bit more apprehensive about getting mental health support or therapy support. And I would think, you know, it might be a bit paternalistic or a bit presumptive for me to say, hey, I'm going to heal you. And they're like, you know, I'm navigating a tough thing and I need your help to do some concrete things. Like, let's Let's not get carried away with this healing woo-woo-ness, you know? So I think, I think <laughs> whether or not that word and that language describes the relationship also depends on the who you're working with. Yeah, definitely. And what setting? Because I think too, like, yeah, if you're working in community mental health, not everybody is coming to you for healing. Some people are like, I have to go through DCFS or I have to go through rehab or whatever it is. But when we're in private practice, we do get to choose. And so I'm... 
calling in clients who are seeking out that deep healing work? Absolutely. Yes. And this is, I, you know, I've taken a break from my public sector nonprofit work after about a decade, and I'm focusing on some writing work and private practice. And more of it is feeling like there's more healing work happening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about the term wounded healer for yourself? You know, I, <laughs> I wonder if it makes me sound a bit like I offer a peer support service. So uh, <laughs> I worry that it might delegitimize the work I do, but also there's mm. something really beautiful about that kind of vulnerability because I, I am also wounded. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. So here's what I'll tell you a bit about the book I'm working on. It's called Seeking mm. Stories of a Gay Therapist Making Sense of Connection and Relationships. Mm. And a big chunk of it is autobiographical. Mm -hmm. And it's because I've had this experience of being in the therapy consulting room with the client and they're talking about all kinds of stuff that I am experiencing in a parallel world almost, you know, or in the same world, but it's a, yep. it's like a, there's something parallel about it because I can't really talk about it, my experience in that room. Right. And so I think part of me is wanting to share something autobiographical because I think the woundedness or the tender places from which my empathy emerges or my own subjectivity informs the treatment process is like, I would call it a, a wounded healer space or a wounded healer knowledge base. So I think like it very much resonates with me, to be honest, though, I haven't thought about it very much before talking to you. Yeah. Well, I, I do think, you know, as you said to the term healer, it denotes some sort of spiritual experience. And if you don't consider yourself a spiritual person, why would you consider these labels at all? Totally, totally, <laughs> totally, totally. I actually would be really interested to hear a little bit about your relationship with spirituality, because it is one of the topics that we really dig into on the show. And one of the themes folks who identify as spiritual and not spiritual talk about wounding in, in early life from spirituality. And I'm curious about your experiences there and how that might have shaped your relationship. You're smiling. So, so, yeah. There's something there. <laughs> no, totally. Okay. So I'm Muslim. I've grown up Muslim. I still identify as Muslim. When people ask me, are you practicing or not? I kind of don't answer them. I'm like, I just... And whatever, like I have a secular relationship mm -hmm. to Islam and it's like, fine, you know, <laughs> because I don't love people's interrogation of what my relationship to that is, because I think lots of people who are white and Christian don't suffer or have to like put themselves through this kind of indignity of dissecting their secular relationship to Christianity. It just is. And so... I'm like, whatever, I have a secular relationship to Islam and it's fine, but that's religion. And I think religion and spirituality are, or can be different. There's obviously a huge overlap, but I think there was a big part of my life where I was questioning religion and critiquing it and feeling angry with it. And while I was feeling angry with it, I was looking for other people that were also angry or also mm. had critiques. Mm. And what I found was that there was an, a lot of people who didn't want to ask certain big questions. And instead they would say, you know, I kind of participate in these religious things or I call myself this or that, but I'm mostly just spiritual now. The way I interpreted it then was that they didn't want 
to do the critical work. They didn't want to reject something that wasn't working for them, or they didn't want to be angry with me at something that might be weaponized against them. Instead, they chose something very individual to mitigate all the baggage that comes with identifying with something organized or something institutional. And I think for a while that that made me very angry because I thought, ah, you're just talking about your individualized relationship with God or a creator and calling it spirituality and bypassing this important critical work of critiquing a system. Yeah. So I didn't love it for a long time. And I said, no, I'm not going to take on this label. I still don't consider myself spiritual, but I don't have that anger anymore because I think spirituality can be so many things like nature, yoga, spending intentional time with certain people, investing in a hobby, sharing your deepest gratitude and love for people and things. Like those are things that reach into the depths of your being and are very honest. You know, to me, that is like what spirituality can be. So having expanded my understanding of spirituality has been helpful for me. Do you follow Spiritual as Fuck on Instagram? No, but I can start. Yes, spiritual underscore AF. Roxanne McDonald is the person behind that. And literally she'll post things about farts or cute dog pictures or whatever. And she's like, it's all fucking spiritual because... Whatever the fuck makes you connect with yourself and connect with something greater than yourself, that's spirituality. (gasps) Oh my gosh. You will love Roxanne. (laughs) Okay, I'm into it. A good friend of mine, Faith Shaput, who is an Indigenous Métis queer woman, and we worked together a couple years ago, she said to me, you know, the purpose of colonization or one of the functions of colonization is to fragment a person. Mm, oh. Yeah. And Oof. so when you just said spirituality is about connecting with yourself, I think about how systems of dominant power like colonization, capitalism, imperialism, they fragment us and they keep us disconnected from ourselves. And now that I'm thinking about it, maybe spirituality is one of the things that heals or allows you to connect with mm. yourself. I often tell people, you know, who are working through addiction or or problem substance use, I often challenge them when they say that, you know, booze or whatever drug helps me connect with other people. Because now I say, do you think it helps you connect with yourself? Yeah. And that's an important realization for a lot of people, including myself, you know, in my relationship with alcohol. And so when you said dog and connecting with yourself, I think I don't have a dog currently, but when I did, I think one of the more beautiful things about having an animal in my life was that you can see how an animal connects with the environment. And that brought me to a different place in the world. You get to see it from a different angle, right? What is the duck sniffing? What are they interested in? What is the vastness that they get lost in? What is the playfulness that they bring to life? And to me, that helps me connect with myself. And if that's what spirituality is, then I'm here for it. Right. Yeah. There's a I think it's a Purina commercial. So forgive the like corporate shout out, but it's a commercial where this guy gets a puppy and Mm -hmm. everything that he's experiencing with the puppy, it's like he's experiencing it for the first time. Just like you said, it's like he's looking at the world through the puppy's eyes, like trying to understand what it's like to be a puppy. And yeah, I think that's spiritual. I'm here for it. Yes, I agree. I agree. I agree. 
<laughs> and I, I got chills when you were talking about how colonization is about like fragmenting us. Like that mm -hmm. fucking makes so much sense. And from a, a religious standpoint, specifically Christianity, I think, because I think there's so much problematic stuff with Christianity. But from what I understand historically is that Christianity in the olden days was essentially trying to take God out of the people to remove people's like paganism which is all about connecting with nature and the land and God within yeah. self, right? And then having some power and authority and control over that, like, fuck, man. Yeah, it's, it's wild to think about it. And I think about it often, you know, like, mm -hmm. and I know this isn't to knock religion overall at all, but more so systems and institutions and humans who have power and cultivate a kind of, dependency in other people or rely on other people's fragmentation, which could be seen as yes. shame, addiction, dependence, all this other stuff to take advantage of them, make them feel bad about themselves. Those are the systems that I think need to be dismantled. And, and they look like many things, you know, like it's not right. specifically Christianity and Islam or anything. Like It's also governments. It's also patriarchy. It's also capitalism. You know, like those things rely on us feeling bad about who we are yes. so that they can own us. And that is an awful thing. And that is a hard thing to repair in one-on-one -on -one therapy, man. <laughs> right, because we can't, right? Oh. We, we can't fix all of capitalism. Oh my God. Oh, there's so much work to do. <laughs> but it's Saturday, so. <laughs> <laughs> For us, it's Saturday, so we'll just talk about it. We'll just have it yeah. next to us. Like I'll have an extra cup of coffee <laughs> and just think about the world. Like, you know, there's some days where that's all you can do. Right. Absolutely. Well, I'd love before we go, if you would tell us a little bit more about your book and kind of like your aspirations. I feel like you seem younger than me. I'm just going to assume, but you've already been working for a long enough time that you're making an impact in the world. And I feel like, I mean, I think ENFJs are like, we're the shit and we get a lot of fucking shit done. But I, <laughs> yes. I don't know. I just, I feel you're really authentic. And what's the word I'm looking for? It's not exactly humble, but there's a, there's a very clean power that you have, right? It's mm. not power over. I think it's just power of self that really comes forward. So I'm just, I'm curious, like all of the amazing things you're going to do with this work. Well, first of all, thank you for naming that. That's like a beautiful compliment to be on the receiving mm. end of. So thank you for that. You're welcome. So this book, I'm hoping to have the manuscript done by May, 2022. And we'll see how it goes. There's also another book I'm working on that's called Same Labels, Different Determinants. And it's about queer guys and the social drivers or social determinants of our mental health. And it's going to be like a workbook where we talk about things like shame, body image, relationships, substance use, aging, coming out, sexual health, and give queer guys exercises to do with their therapists mm. to figure out, you know, what some of the nuanced issues are that we're dealing with or that we, we end up dealing with that impact how we feel about ourselves and how we interact with the world. So those are two books that I'm working on. Hopefully the manuscripts will be done by next spring. I am also, I teach part-time as a sessional lecturer at the University of Toronto. And it's so fun to teach. Like I really, really love it. 
I love connecting with students and I particularly love taking, you know, social work folk and being like, you could be a therapist, but here's like the work you're going to have to do, <laughs> you know? And yeah. I, and I love to be in that, in that educational space. And I'm coming to an end of an era almost. I think I've been doing my community organizing volunteer work with Salam Canada for almost a decade, maybe eight to 10 years. It's really hard to pinpoint when I started and ended but by the end of the summer, I am going to be taking a step back and I'm both excited for that, but I'm, I'm already experiencing the grief of that, you know, because mm. that was really important work to me, but I need to step back so I can make space for some of the other things I'm working on. Right. That's, yeah. Saying no is not my strong suit. <laughs> me neither. I just, <laughs> it's so hard. Yeah. You know what? In fact, saying no and asking for money, those are hard things for me. Mm, yeah. Asking for, oof. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, there's something for me to look at. Well, <laughs> you're an amazing human and I am so glad we've gotten connected. How do you want people to find out more about your work? Where do they go connect with you? Yeah, totally. Well, my website is affectiveconsult.ca. Effective is with an A. And if you want to follow me on all my social media handles, just go to allmylinks.com forward slash Lady Ativan. Ativan is A-T-I-V-N. It is the anti-anxiety medication, uh, which I find quite funny. So allmylinks.com forward slash Lady Ativan. If you want to find my Linktree profile, it's just Arth Hour. Um, and of course, all my stuff is on my website, effectiveconsult.ca. And I look forward to meeting folks in the virtual world, which is yeah. like the real world right now. Totally. It's the only world. It's, it is the only world. Is there a story behind Lady Ativan as your handle? <laughs> yes. There was a time <laughs> when I remember having like really bad anxiety. And this was probably mm. 2013, like anxiety I'd never experienced before because of some difficult stuff that was happening in my personal life. And for the first time, I got a prescription of Ativan. And I was like, oh my gosh, I am a, a medicated social worker. And I thought it was so <laughs> funny. And, you know, it broke down this barrier between us and them. Like they take medication and we don't. And of course, later on, I, I dropped the Ativan and I went on an SSRI, which is like much more sustainable. But then I was like, this is kind of funny. Like we should talk. I think queer people and people in general should talk more about the medication they're on. And we should critique the psychiatric industrial complex and also talk about how sometimes we can't function without medication. So I think both of those things are important to me. And so I embrace it by calling myself Lady Ativan. I also wish I had time, space, and creativity to do drag. And I don't. So I'm just, oh, this is like my that, drag persona. Yes. Oh my God. That's amazing. Wow. If you ever do it, I'll vote for you on Drag Race. Woohoo! Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, and I'm sure our paths will cross again. Absolutely. Thanks so much to Rahim for being an amazing guest. If you want to learn more about him and his work, you can visit us on our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye.